Now entering Nerdist.com. My name is Ben Blacker. I'm the creator and moderator of the Nerdist Writers Panel. I'm also a television writer myself, having written for Supernatural, Super Ninjas, uh, DreamWorks, Puss in Boots, and currently FX's new series, Cassius and Clay. Follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker and let me know who you'd like to see on this show. I'm always looking for new ideas. For guests, and you can always find out about live Nerdist Writers panels, go to writerspanel.tumblr.com. As ever, if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes, and thanks for listening. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blacker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. Let's, uh, let's go down this panel, and because we are recording this for podcast, have you guys introduce yourselves on microphones so the listener knows what you sound like. Uh, let's do that quickly and tell us uh, some of your credits where people may have seen your name, starting with Heath on the All end. Right. Hi, I'm Heath Corson. Wow, I get a nice echo. Uh, you might know me from my DC comic book Bizarro that I'm currently writing. Um, or some of the DC uh, animated direct-to-DVD movies like Justice League War, Assault on Arkham, and Throne of Atlantis. Hi, I'm Craig Engler. I uh, am a former Sci-Fi Channel executive and left the network to co-create Z Nation, which airs Friday nights on Sci-Fi. I'm I'm Miles Miller and uh, created Smallville and a new show called uh, Oh, oh, Badlands yeah. and the Shannara Chronicles. Yes, and I'm Al Goff and I'm with him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Brian Koppelman. I'm a creator, co-creator of the show Billions, wrote Rounders, Ocean's 13, and host of the podcast, The Moment. Uh, my name's Aaron Cohen. I work primarily in sports on documentaries, ESPN, 30 for 30, HBO Sports, lots of other things like that. I'm uh, Jesse Perinal. I wrote on NBC's Dracula and uh, USA's Dig. And uh, I'm adapting uh, the Image Comics series Sheltered as a writer-director right now. Uh, Jake Coburn, I'm a writer-producer. I've worked on, I work on Quantico now, but uh, before that was on Arrow for the first three seasons and uh, Gossip. Thank you. Uh, you guys should know, if you are Nerdist Pan- Writers Panel listeners, uh, you can hear Jesse's voice as someone asking questions in, like, the first 20, 30 episodes of the Nerdist Writers Panel. He was in the audience of those. So it's awesome to see him on the panel today. It's really cool. Um, Now, who on this panel... It's probably easier to ask who hasn't. Who has not written a superhero? (laughs) All right. I want to talk to the superhero people first. (laughs) Uh, let's talk about, uh, and let's start with uh, Miles and Al and talk about the specifics of writing a popular superhero. Uh, what are the challenges and what are the joys of that? You guys obviously wrote uh, Smallville for years and years. You wrote Spider-Man 2, is that correct? Uh, the best one, we can all agree. Um, tell, tell us about the challenges and the triumphs of writing a popular superhero. Well, I think the, it's interesting. I think the challenges have, have changed. I mean, we pitched Smallville 15 years ago. And um, at the time, the previous sort of superhero incarnations had been Batman and Robin and uh, Lois and Clark, which had both gone down about three years before that. 
and when we pitched it, the only film, it was sort of at the very, sort of at the dawn of the age of Marvel, and the only movie that had been made so, at that point was the first X-Men. And so Miles and I pitched this in the, in the fall of 2000, and you know, what's interesting is nowadays you sort of lean very much into the superhero part of it, and mm-hmm. there we actually didn't. We leaned into the sort of human side of who Clark Kent was, and it was more about puberty with superpowers and sort of an exercise in extreme parenting between the Kents and the Luthers. Um, and then the superhero stuff came. We didn't actually dive into the DC toy box until I think season three we had the Flash on. And yeah. Season four we had Lois, and then we had Green Arrow, and then Su- uh, Supergirl by season seven. But um, because they were, they were all afraid of the superhero thing at that point. So we, um, you know, and they actually marketed it away from it. You know, and we had... Um, at the time when we pitched it, we were like, who cares about a guy who runs around in his underwear with an S on his chest? So we said, well, somewhere in the pilot, he's going to be in his underwear with an S on his chest. <laughs> and that became the, the poster where he yeah. was sort of strung up on the cross with the S. Um, but it was, it, was, it was a different time, and it wasn't something that people were really embracing. But it sort of you know, led us to Spider-Man 2. Because I think what you know, Brian Singer had done with the first X-Men and what we were certainly doing with Smallville was we weren't treating them, these characters, as, quote, comic book heroes. We were treating them as real people mm-hmm. and sort of looking at their dilemmas. You know, I mean, I remember somebody told us when we went to our first Comic-Con in 2002, somebody said, you'd done the Marvel Comics version of Superman, which i got to be honest, at the mm-hmm. time I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, and then and that, that actually led to Spider-Man, too, for us. But, and it's interesting to see, I mean, the way the landscape has changed. And we, for those of us who have been coming to these comic conventions for years, have seen that change in the past 15 years, where I would imagine creating your new shows, uh, Into the Badlands, uh, and, and what's the other one called? Uh, Shannara? The Shannara Chronicles. Shannara Chronicles. You could kind of lean into the genre of it, whereas at one time you had to really lean away from it. No, I think it, it's true. I mean, you... You know, with both of those shows, I mean, what's interesting now is how superheroes have kind of saturated the landscape. So for us, it was kind of, you know, what can we do that's not on TV? And actually, our first two features were Lethal Weapon 4 and Shanghai Noon. So we, <laughs> we had a, a sort of a, a good knowledge of martial arts. Um, and so we, we sort of looked around about two and a half years ago at, like, what's on television and, and what isn't, and martial arts wasn't. Hmm. So we... Um, so that's where we came up with Into the Badlands. And, and the Shannara Chronicles as well, it's a book that came to us. And we knew Terry Brooks from his other series, Magic Kingdom for Sale, but knew or heard of Shannara but had never read it. Um, and, but you know, with the exception of Game of Thrones, which is amazing, there wasn't really another big fantasy show. <laughs> and this one has like elves and trolls and you know, a real fantasy yeah. show. So I think for for us, it was sort of finding genres that were underrepresented on television and really, you know, trying to to go for that. Well, they both look great, and we can't can't wait for them. Uh, I want to jump over here to Jake, and were you on Arrow from the beginning of it? Uh, I joined... Pull that closer to you. I think I joined about uh, episode 12 or 13 of the first season. Okay, so you were still there while they were sort of following a similar thing to what Smallville had done, which is to lean away from a lot of the superhero tropes. But then it feels like you guys, around that time, around 12 or 13, started running headfirst towards them. <laughs> well, I think it's, it's that you always sort of want to strike a balance between uh, being faithful to the comics and being faithful to uh, the canon, and yet at the same time kind of telling your own stories and breathing new life into into these characters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think in, in the... In, 
In the specifics of uh, of Arrow, I think it was nice because I got a chance to work with you know the three creators in, in Greg, Mark, and Andrew, who'd sort of grown up loving the the Green Arrow comics, and so for them, they were kids in the candy store and really kind of had this infectious excitement about having a chance to kind of embrace these characters and hopefully do something that the fans love and feel is respectful of the comics, but at the same time is new and surprising and different. And what's kind of crazy now, or at least it's exciting for me to see, is that some of the things that the show has done are now kind of being embraced as sort of, not canon necessarily, but they're being embraced as part of the, you know, the, the full story of these characters, and, and that's sort of the highest uh, form of flattery, I think. Yeah. Um, was it, were you a comic book guy? Was it an easy thing for you to jump into? Um, I, you know, it's, I was actually, I was a comic book guy, but I was really more of a Marvel guy when I joined. <laughs> um, so, so I was much, growing up, I spent a lot of time reading X-Men uh, and, and G.I. Joe and, and a few other things, but, you know, it, it, I think one of the nice things about that arrow as this particular show, and, and certainly Flash, is that they're, they're, the creative approach is, is to try and tell a, a fundamentally sort of human story that is, that is relatable to people that are completely unfamiliar with, with the sort of comic canon, and yet also resonates for people who know it at a very in-depth level. So, you know, as a storyteller, while I, didn't, I was not anywhere near as well-versed as, as the creators, I was able to kind of find my way, you know, as I learn more about the canon, and at the same time kind of just saying, oh, oh wouldn't it be great if we told an Oliver story that, that dealt with this aspect of his life or that aspect of his life, and, and you just kind of, you kind of feel your way through it, and you feel for what's working and what the, what the fans are responding to and what, what feels right. Okay. Uh, sound, sounds great. Uh, I want to go over to Heath, who has written many superheroes in the DC animated movies. Uh, is there, based on what you have heard here today, and I know you're an avid podcast listener uh, to the Nerdist Writers panel. I am. Um, have, is there a difference between writing these characters in the animated DCU uh, as opposed to writers from Arrow and Flash and these kinds of shows? Yeah, it's uh, because there's a different expectation in the animated movies, it's almost the opposite of what you're talking about. Like, I've got to... We get to do the big action. We get to do them smashing through planets and picking up a, a, a whatever, an airliner, and that we can do no problem because it's animation. What I've had to carve out are the, the personal moments, mm-hmm. the, the characters actually getting to have a dynamic and talking to each other, and that's been the most fun, and that's been the thing that I've actually had to push the hardest on in order to get that space. So when I did Justice League War, my take was these are these characters meeting for the very first time. And and it's the opposite of Justice League Doom, written by the late great Dwayne McDuffie, which is the Justice League like firing on all cylinders. This is, if they just met, how do they know to trust each other? All that they know is, okay, we're clearly all against that guy, but I don't know that Batman doesn't kill anybody yet. I don't know that Shazam is a 10-year-old kid. Like, all of a sudden, these characters are bumping up against each other in a really fun way so that became my sort of take so there's some humor there's some fun there's a lot of big character dynamics and that's sort of been my uh my voice for being able to carry it forward in a bunch of the other animation stuff i've gotten to do yeah and it's really interesting and and you've done it well for anyone who has not checked out batman assault on arkham uh it is heath's best work in the (laughs) dcu and it's really really good it's really thank you 
Um, I want to jump over here to Brian. Uh, Brian, you sort of wrote for some superheroes yourself in writing Ocean's 13. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I feel like you're kind of grappling with a lot of the same expectations from fans, from studio, from actors. How did you, how did you even start to wrap your head around that film? Well, by, I mean, the only way to do that was by trying to think of them as people, mm-hmm. right, originally. Um, for us, for David Levine, who's my creative partner, and, and me, um, the opportunity to work with Soderbergh uh, made it that we could go anywhere that we wanted with that story. So if we said to him, you know, <laughs> Casey Affleck's character, in order to chase that, we do heavy research. So, like, one of the things was all the stuff in that movie that seems... Um, really far-fetched. Like, we found out how you would get dice in by asking the dice, awesome. like, the, bo- the dice guys, how do you do it? <laughs> and they were like, well, the stuff gets wrapped and the trucks come in, they're already wrapped. Well, where do they wrap the trucks? Oh, right when they leave the factory. Where's the factory? In Mexico. And then we realized, oh, well, Casey could go down there, get a job, <laughs> lo- you know, figure out how to make the dice trick dice. And then um, what if, and you go, well, what if he started a workers' riot? And because you're working with Steven Soderbergh, even though it's a giant Warner Brothers movie, he's like, oh, yeah, that'll help me figure out a bunch of stuff I want to do on Che later. <laughs> and so you can sort of use it um, that way. That's so, I mean, nice. that's how we were thinking about it. And then the, you know, the, that you're going to then be able to have George and Matt and Brad, they bring the superhero thing, right? They mm-hmm. are that. So all that we have to do is give them stuff that they can use mm-hmm. and apply their very real superpowers, too. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, I'd like to talk, sort of shift this, and, and staying with this film specifically, uh, talk about collaboration and, sure. and sort of more broadly getting notes. Uh, and I, I feel like that's something we can all talk about, uh, that development process. Um, but I assume, I just had the creators of The Nick on the show, who had wonderful things to say about Soderbergh yeah. uh, as a collaborator. What did, what did he bring to he, that collaboration? Uh, I mean, he, uh, he's the single best collaborator Dave and I have ever worked with. Made, How so? Well, we made three movies with Steven. The yeah. Girlfriend Experience, which is the small experimental movie, and we directed a, a film called Solitary Man, okay. this Michael Douglas movie yeah. that Steven produced. And um, because he, here's the... To us, the difference, and I, I bet you people up here will agree with this, um, Steven's notes always emanate from a place of trying to make the material better and to serve the original reason for its existence. And as long as everybody's coming from that place, how do we remember why we're making this thing? Mm-hmm. And how do we make it the best version of it that it can be? As long as you know people are coming from that place, the conversations never become contentious, and you can always find an answer. Yeah. When the notes are emanating from sort of extra story places, that's when it gets more challenging to sort out. When they come from people who are concerned about a whole series of things that have nothing to do with why you're telling the story to begin mm-hmm. with. And um, I've never, it's, that's a very hard, I'm, I'm interested in how everyone here tries to solve that. I usually just tell people to go fuck themselves. <laughs> so. Dude, is, that, is that your way of, of taking a bad note? Yeah. Basically? Yes, it is. How does that go over? <laughs> really well, very often. <laughs> but well, you have to kind of do it with a smile. <laughs> and then it's it okay. makes sense. Uh, Craig, I want, I'd like to hear from you on this same topic. Can, can you talk about some of the stuff we were talking about before taking the stage? about the working with a company who had never made TV before? Yeah. Is that okay to talk about? Yeah, 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 sure. (laughs) So, uh, long story short, the Asylum, uh, makers of such epics as Sharknado 1, 2, and 3, 
uh, wanted to get in the TV business. Thank you. I had nothing to do with Sharknado. Uh, I had done a movie with them many years ago called Zombie Apocalypse with Bing Rames, killing zombies with a sledgehammer. They wanted to get into TV. I wanted to leave the network side and do a zombie series, which was Z Nation. So uh, we kind of created this unholy alliance uh, together. Um, but the asylum primarily knows how to make films, and so they approach TV the way they would approach a film, and their original idea was they would get like 13 directors to, to write and direct 13 episodes. And we were like, no, 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 you know, TV's a writer's medium, so you need a writer's room. And they're like, what's a writer's room? That just sounds like an excuse to spend money. Uh, so, you know, we, we kind of explained it to them and they got it. But the funniest thing is our writer's room is in a conference room in the asylum's studio. And there's three guys that run the asylum, David, David, and, and Paul. And uh, one of the Davids skates around the studio all day long in rollerblades. And once a day, without fail, he comes to the door of the writer's room. He will not enter the writer's room. He will only lean into it. He looks as if to see, okay, I guess they're here. I guess they're doing something. He looks at our whiteboard to see that it's changed. And then he skates off. And then we see him 24 hours later. And it's, you know, it's kind of insane. Um, We end up with a lot of very strange movies, TV hybrid, like, this season, I'm a co-executive producer on 13 episodes and an executive producer on two episodes that I wrote, uh, which is very unusual. Possibly the only time this has ever been done in TV. I don't know. <laughs> you might want to check uh, with the Usually you don't that. go up and down titles per episode. <laughs> um, but because in movies, an executive producer is a very big deal. Whereas, you know, I was saying, Ben, like, under the dome, you have to sit through half an hour of executive producers before the, the show even starts. And we're like, oh no, they give executive producer away titles like candy and TV. It's fine, it's fine. So, you know, we end up with a lot of stuff, but uh, their heart's in the right place. Uh, we got a lot of great, we got some film directors that have done, like John Hyams, who did uh, Universal Soldier, The Return, is very acclaimed. His dad was Peter Hyams. He came in as a director for us, and now he's a, a writer director. Uh, now they just took him away to, to do the remake of Maniac Cop. Um, but uh, So there's a lot of pluses, too. We get a lot of um, film people who've been with the asylum for a long time, many of whom are excellent and used to working on low budgets at a quick pace, so it's great for our little zombie show. <laughs> uh, I want to come over here to Aaron. Um, in the kind of writing you do, you are serving a lot of masters uh, while at the same time trying to tell a story based on actual events. I mean, we should talk a little bit about so people really can can understand the kind of writing you do. And the way you were pitched to me as a panelist is he is the best at what he does. He does a million different things, right? Like those Olympic intros. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everybody wants to work with him. But you just wouldn't know his name because you're almost invisible in, in the process, which is crazy. Well, it's a very different world. Uh, I mean, I'm based here in New York, and it's, you know, it's a network world and a sports world. And obviously... In sports, most of the money and the focus is on like live events. Obviously, Sunday Night Football is the number one show in all of television. Um, but because of that, there are these other there are sports networks and ESPN has a you know five, six, seven channels um, and a ton of programming. And you know, fortunately, they want to invest in programming um, that gets back to what all these guys were talking about. What we all do, which is story, because sports is sort of full of story um, at every turn. I mean, I was thinking, you know, I mean, who are the superheroes of the NFL? Tom Brady, Peyton Manning. I mean, yeah. that's totally that's not even an exaggeration. That's how they're marketed. That's how it's all set up that's why you're interested or you know if your fans are interested and whatnot so um yeah and i mean what's been great sort of for what i do over the last you know five years or a little more than that is that you know espn has come in and really put a ton of money and a ton of focus 
with the right approach, and I know Brian's done one of them and he'd agree, uh, to, to give talented people in and out of sports money uh, to go out and tell some of the best stories in sports, whether they're going on now or they're forgotten and they're 20 years ago, and that's where 30 for 30 came about. And they really run that place, from what I can tell, from, you know, like a studio. I mean, it's like, here's your money, go shoot, you know, with a, 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 a director, producer, whatever, and come back and, and show us your cut. And then we'll give you notes, but, you know, do what you're going to do and, and find your voice and, and tell the story. That's so. kind of like the best studio of all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Brian, you're, you're nodding at this because it can really go the other way, too. Yeah, but, I mean, that's a perfect example. And I, I was just thinking about, it. I mean, I, the flip answer I gave with the, with the curse. But if, you, if what you do is remind people why you're making it, there's a practical way to do it, which is at the beginning. So, like, ESPN... Um, my partner and I directed a 30 for 30 called This Is What They Want about Jimmy Connors, mm-hmm. um, the tennis player. And in the beginning, we sat with them. And if you're really clear about what you're making, they, and if you then can deliver the thing you say you're going to deliver, then the notes process is, is um, not brutal at all. Because as long as you can always say to everybody, um, and I'm finding this now, the show that I'm making for Showtime, Billions, mm-hmm. um, there, they uh, by when they bought the pilot, we all decided what was the show we were going to make. And as long as you can all remember the reason you're making the show, you then can um, sort of all guide it together to the right destination. Yeah. And that is what ESPN 100 percent um, does on those 30 for 30s. They do give you just, I mean, they give you just enough money to make it. <laughs> so, and then um, it, as long as you come in on budget, the notes are great. That's great. That's and, really good. And billions is about super villains, right? <laughs> That's a very um, Manichaean way to look. At it. <laughs> uh, I want to ask about this development process from you, Jesse. Uh, you have written, you've directed, you've written and directed uh, for your current projects. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the development process and, had, as far as you know, have, has it been a typical process? I mean, Brian. What Brian just said is, is absolutely right, but the problem is a lot of the times they, they do forget what they, were gonna, what they signed up to make. Or regimes change. That's when you start cursing. Regimes That's change. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Yeah. Uh, and, and things like that. But, uh, but no, I mean, the two main things that I'm, I'm developing right now that are relevant for here are, I'm writing a pilot for Fox International, the, the branch that make Walking Dead and Homeland. Mm-hmm. And it's been amazing, but it's been... Is not- it a combination of Walking Dead and Homeland? I would watch that. <laughs> uh, no, it's time travel, actually. Um, and, uh, uh, but the idea is that, you know, the, the, the people I've been working with, they all want to make the best version of the show. They all want to make a show that runs for seven years. I mean, they don't want to just do something that they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on or millions of dollars and then just doesn't go anywhere. So their notes have been really smart. It's been really great. But it's been a long process, which is mm-hmm. rare in television. It's been about nine or ten months because they're producing the new uh, Kirkman show, for Cinemax, which I think is called Outcast. Outcast, yeah. And, uh, and so they're jumping Based around. Based on the band. Yes, exactly. No, uh, it's going to be great. I've heard it's great. But so it, so it's, it's, you know, everybody's just trying to make the best show, and it's been really refreshing, but it's been like, I'll wait a month for notes sometimes. Yes. And, and, and i just got to make sure, remind everybody, well, this is the thing we bought. Okay, on, cool. <laughs> yeah. you know. On that show, what was your, what was your pitch like? Uh, and I will ask this of anyone like, who has pitch shows. It's interesting, I'm it's, curious it's interesting too, because with that show... We pitched it to network and to cable, mm-hmm. and, and there was a very different version. It nearly went to CBS, and that show would have been incredibly different. It would have been kind of a time trial procedural, mm-hmm. and my show is much more serialized, and, and I'm very happy that it's a cable show, and if I'm lucky enough to get on the yeah, I mean, I'd love to have a show on CBS. <laughs> but um, so, so we pitched it uh, a year ago, and, and, you, and you, know, you tweak it each time, each network you go to. 
and uh, I'm at a level where I just really would like to, would like to sell things. And need to, I don't have the choice to say, oh, I don't want to sell, sell it there. So you, you really work for it. And the version that we ended up selling was actually the best version of the show. Right. It was a show that I was most passionate about. That's good to hear. And, uh, and we, let me interrupt for a second. Yeah. We always hear how difficult time travel shows are to pitch. Yeah. Was it that difficult to pitch? There's a lot of costumes. And, sure. Uh, no, no, it, was, it wasn't that difficult because it was really emotional. It was an emotional story. It was much more closer to like a quantum leap mm-hmm. than like a time cop. There wasn't like, you know, huge action pieces. It was really about a relationship uh, between this, this man who's traveling through time and what he needs to achieve. It's about the big choices, whether he can save the world or he can save his marriage. Mm-hmm. And that seems like it might be an obvious choice to some people, but most people, you know, you go for the more personal. And that, once you hook into that emotional hook, once you hook into the emotional, once you discover that emotional hook, it was it was easy to pitch. Yeah. And it's just all about the characters. And that's the, great. Things. That's so, really cool. Um, for the rest of you who have pitch shows, uh, Miles and Al, can you tell us about pitching uh, either of the new shows you have coming on? Yeah. Well, so they are actually opposite experiences. So into the Badlands, we pitched to one place, AMC, and they bought it in the room. <laughs> um, but it took a year. That to, must have been some pitch. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> but that was that was exceptional. Yeah. Then, what what did the pitch look like? How? What is your style that you guys have? Well, it's very. Uh, it's we always have a sizzle reel. So we have probably a three minute trailer which we've cut from other movies. That's always like a good start for our pitch. And then we have a probably a twenty page document which lists sort of the the story, the characters, the world, episodes. Because we like to know before we go and pitch what the, what the series is. You don't want to go and pitch a series and not know what the next episode's going to be. So it's like, you know, pilotitis, which is like a great pilot, and then the series goes nowhere. So just as us for confidence, we like to know where the series is going. So that was great. That was a cool experience. And the Shannara Chronicles is the exact opposite. And we have uh, we had just 16 places. We've got John Favreau, who's the executive producer with us the whole time, pitching wow. away, and he's an amazing pitcher. Um, and literally came down to the last place, MTV, and they bought it. But it was literally the opposite experience. So it's, yeah. you never know. What, and, and did you have any insight into why MTV was the buyer? Or, like, what, can you, was there a difference among the pitches? Well, we, uh, sorry, for, um, I mean, one of the reasons Suzanne Daniels, who bought it when she ran MTV, actually bought Smallville from us. Oh. So, so we knew her, which was great. Sure, no, that um, goes a long way. So that helped. And then also, I think because the, the protagonists in the show are three, you know, 20-somethings, you know, sort of late teen 20-something, I think it sort of appealed to them, you know, because obviously they had Teen Wolf, which has worked for them, and they were looking to do something bigger and also, I think, you know, to take a big swing. So mm-hmm. I think it, it was just kind of the right pitch to the right person at the right, which is a lot of these things yeah. are. Oh, absolutely. You know, we've done that with movies. You go and you pitch it to, like, 10 places and the 10th place buys it. So, yeah. you know. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but it's pain, pitching is painful. I mean, I, <laughs> I, my, I, honestly, the recommendation would be spec it and then yes. sell it. Is that, has yeah. that Brian, you're, you're agree, agreeing with this? Um, 100%. Yeah, I mean, even hearing your story, I, uh, which I understand, but, but even that thing you said about I'm not in a position not to sell things, I think it's just 100% false. Of course you are. Um, because then you will find that, yes, that uncomfortable three- to six-month period of uncertainty, if you actually write something you believe in and then you have the thing, you then have all the control and power over what you do with it. If I had to pay my rent. Today, yeah, but, my rent. No, that's, that's, yeah, so did Quentin Tarantino. So did Quentin, right? But he wrote Pulp Fiction, Final Draft, and wouldn't make changes. No, I reject it. 
no, if you want to do this badly enough, then you say to yourself, I'm going to take the, I mean, I have just found my, my career 20 years later that the times that my partner and I said, no, we're not going to pitch, we're not going to play Hollywood's game. We're going to create the thing that we believe in. That's when we've had the, we look back, because all you have when you look back, you have your family, your friendships, and you have this work. And the things I can look back on that I'm the proudest of, um, most of them started that way where they, it was written. And then you can say, do you guys want to do this? Or do you not want to make it with us? And I think that's when you have the, the clearest, cleanest chance to do mm -hmm. something great. You still may not do something great, but at least you're giving yourself a shot. Sure, and at least it's coming from you purely, uh, which is kind of something I'd, I'd like to ask everybody about. In fact, we'll go down the line, starting with Heath. Has there been uh, something that you have created that has been the purest distillation of you and your interests as a writer and a person? Uh, yeah, I, I actually, exactly what Brian just, just spoke about, I went through a whole pitching process with a show that I absolutely loved, which was a limited series about a, uh, a heist gone terribly awry, and I pitched the hell out of it. I came in with like a blueprints for a bank, and I'd unroll it, and I'd be like, okay, these guys are here. I had cards with all my characters, pictures <laughs> of characters, so you could get a sense of who was where in the bank, and... And uh, it didn't sell, and so I had to go down and, and just spec it, and I just specced the hell out of it and was just like, I'm going to throw in absolutely everything that I love. They're going to talk the exact way that I want them to talk, even down to the description, you know, is, is just exactly the way I wanted it to be. And luckily people are responding to it, but it was absolutely the purest distillation of, of myself. And I would say I have a similar experience with Bizarro, which has been another very pure distillation of my comedy. <laughs> and to their credit, DC hasn't um, bumped against it at all. If you haven't read the book, the book is Bizarro and Jimmy Olsen on a road trip to Canada together. So it is literally planes, trains, and automobiles with Jimmy Olsen and Bizarro. Um, it's really way fun. fun. You really please fun. read it. Uh, and to their credit, it's so weird they haven't told me no. And I just, I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to keep pushing forward and throwing this stuff in because you're not telling me no. Um, so check it out. Uh, Craig, has there been um, something you have created that is that you can look at and say, yes, this is me on the page, whether it's a series or even just an episode or even a moment? Uh, yeah, well, Z Nation is loaded with it. I mean, Zombie Apocalypse was a was a movie I wrote with a friend of mine, and we just we wrote it. We got almost no notes on it, and it and we I directed not directed, but stood behind the director annoyingly for half of the shoot that I could be there and was literally making sure I got the stuff I wanted. Uh, Z Nation, I have a co-creator, Carl Schaefer, so it's really sort of Carl's version of a pitch of mine, so we kind of do it all together in the writer's room. And then I have a production partner. We actually have about 10 shows that we're in various stages on. In fact, we're going to be spending a lot of time pitching uh, the normal way uh, out there, but all of the shows are very personal, and they're like shows I want to see, well, and shows I right. think that should be on the air and that people right. would like and that aren't on the air. Can, can you talk a little bit? I mean, is there something more, since Z Nation is the thing we, we primarily know you from, is there something more to that this is the show I want to see that makes it personal? Well, first of all, there's characters in the show that I wanted to see. Um, one of the interesting things is, and this is Slightly long, but I'll go through it very quickly. So we had Harold Perrineau in the first episode. We set him up as the guy who's going to be the leader, and then we kill him. 
and in the first episode. And everybody was upset because we, we cast colorblind. We just got the best actor. We happened to get a, a black actor. And so they were upset that we killed the black guy. Everyone was like literally writing in, oh, you killed the black guy. You're you know, such a And I said, well, wait till episode six because we're going to kill the white guy. And then the black woman is going to become the lead of the show, <laughs> which is something I had wanted to do because I have a lot of strong women in my life. So episode six rolls around. We kill uh, Tom Everett Scott, who was great. Uh, great sport about it, and now Colina Smith is is the lead of the show, and that's been great because people have really responded to her being yeah. the lead. But that's something like all along, I'm just like, just wait till episode six. <laughs> uh, the only downside is we don't really get like I feel like we've got a, a genre show with a kick-ass female lead. And we don't really get enough credit for it. So hopefully you all can tell everybody, like, oh, Z Nation's got a great female lead. We're all talking about strong roles for women in Hollywood. And this is one. So, yeah. But, yeah, that's totally personal because I have, like, my mom would be the survivor of the zombie. <laughs> you know, she'd be, like, running Canada or something, you know, because she's a very strong woman. So That's hilarious. Um, before uh, we get to Miles and Al, uh, if you guys have questions, we're going to go to questions next. So why don't you start lining up at the microphone, and then I'll give you the rules about questions. But uh, gentlemen, is there something you have created that you can point to as being very personal to you that's made it through the networks or studios somehow? Well, I guess for us, or for me anyway at this point, it's Into the Badlands, because it's completely original, and sort of it's a mashup of everything we love, which is superheroes, martial arts, and science fiction. And it felt like we... They let us do it, what we wanted to do, so it's sort of insane, very, very cool way. So that for us, for me anyways, feels like a really good yeah. distillation of what I love. Yeah, That's great. I would also say Smallville, because I grew up in a small town, so there was a lot, of, a lot of that for me. It did have, I will say, especially in that first season, a real lived-in small town feel, yeah. and that, that must have come from you. That's yeah. interesting. Was there stuff you pulled specifically that you can recall? I know it's a while ago. Oh, yeah, I mean, there was. I can't remember exactly what it was, but there were, like, even names of places and things like that. And, you know, it was an asshole teacher I always tried to, like, from high school that I tried to work his name into, you know. So it's all, it's all those things. Yeah. <laughs> Brian. Uh, certainly, um, Solitary Man, this movie, the Michael Douglas movie, and Rounders um, came from yeah. a lot of stuff that, that I love. But I'd say... Um, uh, the, the podcast that I do, which is The Moment. Um, which, do you guys know The Moment? Do you know Brian's podcast? Yeah. It's great. You should Thanks. check it out. Thanks. Um, it's really great. And uh, it's, uh, for me, to be able to engage in the conversations, I was a blocked writer until I was 30. I couldn't write until I was 30 years old. And wow. um, the pain and kind of frustration of that uh, and, and then figuring out how to break through it was so crucial to me and, and my, my happiness. And, and so... Uh, I talk to people about that kind of thing on the yeah. show, and it's it, for me that's um, I'm getting right at the heart of something that I'm trying to unlock all, all the time for other people and myself. It, that's really cool. That's, that's, it's interesting to hear that thematic element uh, in the podcast, which I feel like is there in your films as well. It's, it's neat to yeah. see. I'll watch those in a new light. Uh, Aaron. Yeah, um, well, I'm really fortunate because working in sports, like, I love sports. Uh, you know, I loved it when I was a kid. I love it Ooh, now. Wrong crowd, Aaron. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Anybody else love sports? I love Anybody? Sports, All right. I love sports. Thank you. They're into it. They're into so, it. And yet, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 37 years old. I have a wife and two kids. And yet, I'm literally right now nervous about the Mets game on, on Friday night. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> so... To me, that's, even though th that's an emotional thing, it strikes me as p 
peculiar, and I think about that, and I try and figure out why, and I, I think about that a lot. And so what I'm getting at is um, about six, seven years ago, HBO did a show, uh, started to do a show for the uh, Oscar de la Hoya Floyd Mayweather fight. Uh, it's, it's called 24-7, and it was basically a behind-the-scenes reality show of uh, those two fighters uh, in their training camps before, um, before their big fight. And they brought me in because when you're doing reality in sports as opposed to reality uh, you know, the kinds you see uh, elsewhere on television, you're not going to get as much access, so you need narration to kind mm-hmm. of uh, connect it. And so I was brought in to narrate in the voice of HBO Sports, uh, Liev Schreiber, uh, mm-hmm. who you guys would know from uh, Wolverine and other things, and obviously Ray <laughs> Donovan. Um, he's, he's the narrator, he's the voice, and he's an amazing narrator. So anyway, we were doing the show, and the narrator kind of had a limited uh, place, um, and we sort of figured, you know what, you know, we can have a big emotional close to the show, um, which was just going to be kind of a montage of, of training and fighting and whatever. And I was like, well, you know, why don't we try and write something that pays tribute to why we all care about the fight? Um, and so we kind of scripted what we would call like an essay about a two-minute sort of meditation on this that, uh, you know, Liev narrated um, that came out really, you know, really cool and it felt, felt right. And then it's, it's been something that I've been able to explore continuously. I still write the show. I mean, I just wrote, you know, a, a rough draft of, it, of an open for a um, Cotto-Canelo fight uh, that's coming up uh, in November. So anyway, so that to me gets at the heart of why I love sports and it allows me to kind of access that and, 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 and play with that idea. That's really cool. That's great. You know, I think the one thing that might be different from most of the guys on this panel, because I'm still a fairly newish writer, the idea of working on other people's shows and writing in the voice of the showrunner, but still adding some personal touches. Like when I was working on Dracula, the idea of putting some, making sure that I fit within the showrunner's um, voice and also the voice of the show, but managed to actually tell some little managed to put some words into Dracula's mouth and, and Mina Harker's that were, spoke to my experience growing up in England in, you know, in the 80s and 90s as opposed to Victorian England fantasy. But it was just have those little victories where you can have a little emotional truth of something that actually was something personal to me, yet be in a, in a huge show was really satisfying and fun. That's perfect. That's so right. hopefully in the pilot that I'm writing now that will eventually end up on the air, probably not, <laughs> Um, but would be great. There's a lot of personal stuff in there. Of course. It's basically all personal That's excellent. Stuff. Yeah. Jake? Um, I, I guess I would say that before I was writing for television, I wrote uh, two novels, one about a sort of a graffiti artist in New York City, a teenager. Uh, and the second one I wrote was about sort of screwed up college kids. And, and both of them were, were sort of deeply personal um, sort of stories that I felt on some kind of creative level I needed to tell, and I think it was probably partially my age at the time, you know, in my early 20s and then sort of mid-20s, and the experience of doing that was was incredibly solitary. Um, you know, you write a book, you're spending a year, two years, maybe three years. In some cases, some people, you know, take 10. Some of the best have taken 20, but you, you really are alone, and you'll talk to your editor maybe every three months or something like that, and the final product you get back is 99% you. It's your words. They pick the cover. They pick the quotes that go on it. But, but it's you. And, and that's a deeply personal and very gratifying experience. And, and then television also has those opportunities. But I found that they're more so sort of these moments that you hold on to or specific stories that you feel fully like you take ownership for. Because on some level, you have to kind of commit when you're making TV that like, or me, me as a writer, I'm going to write it the way I want to write it, but then the actor is going to say it the way they want to say it, and the director is going to shoot it the way they want to shoot it, and an editor is going to get involved, and someone's going to write the score, and it's just it's it's such a collaborative process, and 
you know, part of me kind of tries to embrace that because to fight against it is sort of, at least for me, uh, it's very difficult. So you kind of find your places where you kind of hold on and say, you know what, this particular story, for, for Arrow specifically being drawn to like, you know, this, the, the Oliver and Felicity stuff, or for Gossip Girl being drawn to like a Chuck and Blair story, you kind of find places that you really, you own and love. Great. That makes a lot of sense. And the books are still available. People can get them on Amazon, right? Uh, yeah. Great. What are they called? Uh, the first one is called Prep, and it's about a uh, sort of a rich kid turned thug. I read that. That was yeah. great. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, like and then there's another <laughs> one called Lovesick. Uh, all right. We have time for just this many questions. If you guys keep your questions... I'm pointing at you. If you keep your questions to one sentence... <laughs> all right? One non-run-on sentence. And if you all keep your answers yeah. to not pass one minute of speaking. <laughs> all right? Uh, and adjust the microphone so you, you speak into it. Okay. Shoot. Um, There's a lot of pressure for the first one. Hi. Um, all right. I have a question. Um, That's it? When it, com- <laughs> when it comes to pitching to um, a network... Um, what are the specifics that they're actually looking for between, like, the actual team you assemble, even the material that you presented in? Like, what are, what are the things that really that they're looking for? I think we should first say, yeah, let's, let's have you guys handle this, but let's, let's off the bat say there's no secret formula. Yeah. No, no, right? there, I think that's sort of the baseline, but go ahead. No, there, re- there really isn't a secret formula, and as Miles said, we try to do a pretty deep dive before, so that we understand what it is. I think what they really... You know, they want to know what the, what the show is, all the usual things, but they kind of want to know it's a series and that the series has elasticity. So you, it's, a, it's a strange combination of you have a hook to what you're pitching as a pilot, but then it has the elasticity to go 100, 200 episodes. So I think that's, that's kind of what they're, what they're looking for. It's, it's like, what, you know, can the series sustain itself? Is there enough story engines? Are the characters compelling enough? Good answer. Are you dressed as Emily Blunt in Sicario? I am. I am Chris uh, Chrisita from uh, The Hunger Games. I'll take it. So I'm trying, Good job. I'm trying to be, but Next. thank you guys so much. Hi. Um, we don't have time for that. <laughs> so uh, I was wondering, I'm sure you get this question all the time, um, but besides write every day, if someone wants to be in your shoes someday in the ever-changing landscape of television, um, what would you say next steps are besides building a large body of work? First of all, well asked. Thank you. <laughs> writing programs? Apply to the writing programs that are great for young women. If, if, you know, if you feel like you're getting to your writing is in a place where you think it's ready to share, mm-hmm. just apply to them. Every big network, every big studio has one for television. I'm sure you guys are familiar with them, and they're... They really do work, and they really do help, and they'll give you feedback. And I, was, I did the NBC one. It was fantastic. Great. And, uh, yeah, I can't recommend That's that. good advice. Anything else? Yeah, I would say make stuff, right? So if you like comics, make a comic, because even if you go into a, a TV meeting and you have a physical thing that you can do, if you can write a novel, God bless you, you've gotten two over there, that's hugely impressive. If you can make a short film, if you can make a web series, anything, just make, make, make stuff and get it out there. And watch TV. Like, see, see what's actually it's the working. Best watch mostly our yeah. shows. I love it. Uh, you thank can you. Write it I, off. I like your night nurse costume. Thank you. Next, next question, please. Okay, I'm not wearing a costume, so don't try to guess. I it. like your Brian Fuller cosplay. Uh, <laughs> I don't know who that is, and I feel bad. Um, this question's for Brian. Um, so, like, regarding, oops, walking tall. Um, 
which is kind of like a superhero movie, I guess, and the fact that like The Rock is you know the hero of the story. What did you bring to that story? Are you asking because you've heard the story that they uh, in the the meeting um, that we had? We were the last writers on it. They um, I've told this on my podcast in the meeting with the studio executives, and this is one of the reasons that I knew um, I wanted to go back to writing originals. Uh, they said it was very important that we give the uh, baseball bat a personality. Oh. <laughs> wow. Is your answer nothing? So then? that is what we brought to that. Okay. What right does there. that mean? That's a hell of a question. <laughs> was this a, a fuck you situation? <laughs> um, no, it was a just coming out of a year and a half of writing spec situation, and it was um, like, oh, that Rent. seems like uh, a good thing. But these are the ways you learn those. Le- so that's exactly how you learn the lesson, my man. That's how you learn the lesson. Um, no, and, uh, and the other more serious answer is they couldn't get um, somebody to play. So here's the real answer to the question is, they did say that in the meeting, give it a personality, the two by four. You know, give that thing a personality. Uh, it was a, in the original movie, then a bat. And then the other thing was um, they couldn't get somebody to play the Johnny Knoxville part. And in fact, Johnny had an offer on, I think it's years enough later, I could say it. They had offered him the thing. He wouldn't take it based on the earlier scripts, despite the money. And they um, said, could you guys come in and write a character pass um, that will make him want to say yes to it. That's, that's a big thing I've learned about the past couple of years, which I never really thought of as a writer, is you really want to write, especially if you're specking something, but in any circumstance, write something that an actor wants to play, because it's the actor who can very often make a thing go. Yes. Uh, so that's, that's interesting that that was part of the job. Sure. Yeah. Next question, please. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, just wanted to, my question is that with zombies being so popular, you have Z Nation, you have um, Walking Dead. How do you keep it fresh? How do you separate yourself? Like, how did you bring that to the table? Did you watch? Did you watch that episode? Do you watch other zombie stuff? Do you do you watch the other genre? Are you looking at Marvel and DC? Are you looking at the competition, or are you just trying to stay away from it and keep your ideas fresh? Um, first of all, I watched The Walking Dead. I love it. It's a great show. Uh, you know, I think it's one of the best pilots ever made uh, on that show. Um, there's a lot of stories in the zombie apocalypse. You know, I always say, like, The Walking Dead is, is essentially the day one story. I mean, you're a little past day one, but, you know, your Rick is in day one, and our story is the day 1,000 story. They've been in it for three years already when you pick up. It's kind of like a cop show. You know, people were like, oh, why are you going to make another zombie show? I'm like, well, uh, there's cop shows, there's vampire shows, there's werewolf shows, there's medical dramas, so there's lots of stories to tell. So uh, we just, I had this particular story I wanted to tell about competent survivors in the apocalypse who were looking for a cure, not just trying to survive. You know, they were, they were getting pretty good at it, which doesn't mean that they can't be killed. It just means that they're kind of the top of the top who've survived. And, you know, there's not a lot of those stories out there. There are some in other media, but um, I watch, you know, lots of whatever I like. You know, I watch Downton Abbey and Game of Thrones <laughs> and American Pickers. I mean, lots of random <laughs> stuff, you know. I'm dying to see uh, Into the Badlands, yeah. so, you know, that's like the highest on my list, and it's not just because they're sitting next to me. I think you can really uh, see the Downton Abbey influence in Z Nation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you would be surprised, though, the, the influences, sure. you know, like, you know, there, there are a lot of very goofy things in Z Nation, and that's primarily Carl, the, the my co-showrunner, or the uh, co-creator and the showrunner. And then a lot of the very serious drama, especially when the characters get killed, like that's a lot of what I bring to the table because, right. you know, it was like, it's the zombie apocalypse. We want you to think anyone can die at any time. And in fact, we kill all the leads in the show as, as we go through. So, you know, yeah. So, uh, but, but I think there's tons of stories to tell in the zombie genre. Yeah, it's, yeah just a genre like any other. Thank so you. Next question. One other show. Two shows. This is about the 30 for 30. Um, what was you guys' like, favorite documentary to make about the 30 for 30? 
Like, which documentary was your favorite? Oh, well, he's made a lot of them. I only made one documentary, so that was my favorite one. But it is. <laughs> favorite one to make um, two of them with Magic Johnson one for HBO which was oh, Magic awesome. and Bird Courtship Arrivals which is uh, directed by a guy named Ezra Edelman who's like doing he's the best in the business uh, he's doing some amazing stuff uh, and then the other one was for ESPN it was, it was called The Announcement and it was about Magic Johnson doing AIDS and wrote that uh, which was cool because Magic narrated it so mm-hmm. sort of wrote it for him and worked with him and then you know, um, he, he, he narrated it. So that, that was cool. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the cool thing about them is, like I said, they're, they're all made by different directors, and they let the directors have different voices. So mm-hmm. they're not uniform. You're going to get so many different things. But yeah. How, how long is the process on one of those, like uh, a half-hour one? Um, I guess a year. My, yeah, my, yeah, ours probably. took a year, the yeah. one that we made. That seems yeah, about I mean, right. it, it'll vary. You know, and some are 60, some are 90, <laughs> some are two hours. So right. that depends. Thank, Thank you. you. Next question. There. Um, so you guys have talked a lot about promoting equality in the industry, which I think is wonderful, but I noticed there aren't any women on this panel. So I wanted to yeah, ask Heath. you guys, whose fault? So yeah, let me, to- let me address that first, because I'm, I'm no happier about it than you are. I love all these guys. I'm thrilled to have them. These things are a pain in the ass to book. Uh, I went with the first 10 people who said yes. Okay? <laughs> There's Very that. high bar. Yeah. Uh, can I ask a follow-up? But, but I agree. I would have liked to have hear, heard a... I mean, listen... And I know a writer in, in your writer's room, Beth Schachter, was asked to do yes. it. Yes. And she couldn't do it. She, Beth was... Who, uh, Beth wanted to do it in Cheryl Wheaton. I mean, I know the yeah. women that you did ask. And yeah. I know she, Beth sent you, right? Yeah. Again, I agree. I, I think that there should be more representation in TV and on these panels. And I think the fact that we couldn't find a woman to respond in time uh, just speaks to a bigger problem in the industry. What is your follow-up? My follow-up was just going to be that how do you think that young women aspiring to be writers can really break down these barriers to the industry? Now is the best time, mm-hmm. honestly. Um, like, if people are, showrunners are actively looking for women, we, we, for diversity. We always hire, we make a deliberate effort and concerted effort to hire the strong female voices for the shows. For both shows, we have great female writers on both right. staffs. Um, and diversity on, on the cast, it's a big, big... Uh, concern of ours that we have both great ethnic diversity and we have strong female characters. And I think that's it's definitely changing. I think uh, and, and in the next ten years we'll see that shift. And big, I will I will also way. add um, for young women, for young men, for whatever, make sure your stuff is good. That's the best thing you can do. Work the shit out of it and make sure your material is good. And those those writers programs I mentioned before yeah. they do they, they cater especially towards diversity in women. And, and the, right, the few rooms that I've been in have been half women and a third women. In that. So we, there's definitely, they're definitely out there and doing really well. They're kicking us. I mean, Keto, do you work with Keto right on Arrow? She's amazing. She's a huge genre girl that came out of the same program I did, and we all know her and love her. And, you know, so there's, there's, definitely, there's definitely opportunity. It's just, as Ben said, just make, your, make sure your stuff is polished. And think bigger. Think bigger. Just write the show. That's a really badass show that you want to make and refuse to sell it unless you're the showrunner. That happens all the time. You just have to go do it. Yeah, and the, the other thing is, um, on the page, everybody is equal. And like when I was at the network, I can't speak for any other executive. I never even looked at the unless someone told me, "Oh, this is like a script by like Brian Singer or something like that." Honestly, it didn't matter to me whether it was a man or a woman or a frog, whatever it was. If it was a good, like a good script stands out, yeah. regardless. So be the best writer you can be. And I know that's like stupid and sounds cliche, and it's like 
glosses over a lot of problems in the industry, but, but really, like, good writing rises above everything else. I, I don't actually think that's true, but I think that, because I, I think that people bring their own prejudices to it, they can't help themselves. When you get a stack of scripts, you have a prism through which you look at them. That's why you probably have to write something better than we would write, right? Because you're a young woman, and it's still mostly men making those decisions. And so you have to probably do something better than we would do. But that's the target you have to set for yourself, and then you can leap right over those hidden prejudices that we all would pretend or swear or really mean it that we don't have, but probably do. Thank you guys for being advocates. Thank you. Yeah, and stop mansplaining, you guys. It is. All right, last question, very quickly. This one's for um, Jake. Um, for on Arrow, what do you? What's your take on like Oliver's transition from like being a playboy to being a vigilante? Um. Be a little bit more specific, and I'll give you a good answer. I mean, from like season three to season four, pretty much, from being the Arrow to Green Arrow. Well, I am not. I I left the staff after the end of season three to go on to a new show for Quantico. So how I do you feel I, about it as a viewer? I, I don't want to speak for uh, for them, but I, I will say that uh, that Wendy and Mark, who are sort of who are you know co-running the show this year, obviously with Andrew and Greg as well, but they're crazy talented, and, and Wendy is, is certainly a, a shining example of, of a woman who has broken through a ton of barriers and, and has had incredible success. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm really, I'll be honest with you, it's, it's, it's the first time in my career where I've ever left a show that is continuing on without me, and I'm really excited to see where it goes. And it's sort of this surreal thing where it's like, I was so on the inside, and now I'm on the outside the way everybody is as just a fan again and and i'm excited for the stories i'm excited for thea like i want to see what happens there i want to know about the gray like i have all of these questions and i gotta be honest with you i don't have any answers because i can tell you what's going to happen on quantico but i'm not sure you want to know when is quantico that's the lead of your show right when is she going to become arrow She, she, she will. You know, the funny thing is, is that Priyanka is on on the show as well as in real life. She is a superhero, totally. of her own. <laughs> and and um, you know, it's it's kind of funny too because the character that she plays and Oliver Queen, they're both they they both come in with a lot of a uh, lot of issues regarding their father. And and <laughs> I was noticing similarities as I was working on on on, on Quantico, but. Um, Thank you for your love of Arrow. <laughs> Arrow is one of those shows yeah, no problem. that is so, so grateful for, for yeah. the fans' appreciation. It, like, it breathes life into the writers and to the creative process, knowing how devoted the fans are. Yeah, thank you. All right, uh, we have time for one more question, and that is from me, and you have about 20 seconds each to answer it, starting here with Jake, and we'll just go down the line. What television are you watching these days? What are you excited about? What is your writer's room talking about? What are you talking about with your friends and loved ones? Go. Uh, I'm obsessed with the Nick... I really like You're the Worst, um, and also watching Arrow. Good answers. Jesse? Uh, the, one, the one show that probably not everybody else will say, because I agree with pretty much everything <laughs> he said, is uh, Manhattan. Manhattan's really yeah. good. It's a the pilot's okay, but the series is fantastic, so if you get into it, the second season's about to start, I think, in a week or two. Yeah. Aaron? Just to stick with sports, go to ESPN.com, Grandland.com. Uh, <laughs> check out their short films, because they're just like a 15-20 minute investment, um, yeah. and a lot of really cool stories being told there on Grandland. Yeah, that's great. Brian? I am totally obsessed with uh, Project Greenlight. <laughs> I cannot... 
I'm just totally obsessed <laughs> with this season of Project Greenlight. I just want to watch it over and over. And it has villains and so heroes. And I, I just wish that there were watch 40 episodes. <laughs> I wish there were 40 episodes of that thing. Oh I never want it to end. It's like watching somebody else go through it. This is what happens in a writer's room. This is why we don't get things done. If someone mentions Project Greenlight, everybody starts talking. All right, Al. Yeah, Project Greenlight, Homeland. I'm about to dig into Narcos. All right, yeah. Miles. I like the Nick and Narcos and what else? Uh, Penny Dreadful. Oh, yeah, good one. Good answer. Craig. Probably my favorite show, because my mother was an antique dealer, is American Pickers. And I actually ran into Mike Wolf in Hollywood and stopped him on the sidewalk. And I was like, and he thought I was this crazy fan, but I actually know two people he's developing shows with. So then he invited me down to his shop in Nashville. So I'm going to go. <laughs> Uh, I'm watching documentary now on IFC, which is really sharp and really funny. And uh, I've just finished Penny Dreadful, and I want more. I want more Penny Dreadful. Thank you guys all so much for being here. Thanks to our panelists. Please give them a round of applause. Thanks to everyone in New York Comic Con. Enjoy the rest of your con, everyone. Now leaving Nerdist.com.